0: All right, hello and welcome to the Middle East Forum's (laughs) (laughs) webinar series Israel Insider with Mr. Ashley Perry. I'm Stacy Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel Office. Join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all current events in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on everything Israeli for 10 to 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We'll do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on this webinar, so I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours today. And Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry.
1: Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, we're going to start this week uh, with how we started last couple of weeks, and possibly even next week, and talk about the issue of the application of Israeli sovereignty uh, in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria over the Green Line. As we speak, uh, senior American officials, possibly even President Trump himself, but certainly uh, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo, uh, advisor to the President Jared Kushner, Ambassador to Israel, uh, uh, David um, Friedman uh, and others are meeting to decide what exactly as as it's claimed, is going to be their response to uh, Israel's, or at least Prime Minister Netanyahu's, off-stated policy of uh, July 1st, starting this process of uh, applying Israel's sovereignty to certain parts, uh, up to uh, 30%, as in the uh, Peace to Prosperity Trump Peace Plan. Basically, it's being billed as, you know, what uh, America's response is going to be. But at the end of the day, I think what's quite clear, despite uh, Secretary Pompeo saying even in the last 24 hours, again, it's up to Israel to decide what it's going to do. We're not involved. It's quite clear that it's heavily involved. And uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu probably and uh, alternate Prime Minister Benny Gantz certainly will not move without an American green light. There are certain camps within uh, the American advisors. The more maximalist approach uh, will certainly be taken by Ambassador Friedman, who is in favor of giving uh, Israel as wide breadth as possible to apply as much sovereignty uh, as it will. Uh, There are certain others, some say Secretary Pompeo is more reluctant, Uh, let's say more of a minimalist approach, uh, either to sort of try and get them to back, uh, try and get the Israeli government to back away Uh, Not fully, because I think that's probably too late, but at least to do uh, something far less. Uh, And there's going to be a lot of to and pro. Um, There's a sort of game being played here where the American administration, as often happens, throws it back on the Israeli administration, the Israeli administration throws it back on the Americans. And this is all kind of a game to uh, lay the blame elsewhere. So either way, you get an unhappy audience. Uh, electorates on both sides are looking to this. Again, in America, it's certainly not the issue. It's certainly not one of the greatest issues of this presidential race, but it's certainly an important uh, uh, issue for certain populations. Uh, I don't think that should be overstated because it's you know usually uh, elections are about domestic politics and certainly that's no different uh, with the American presidential election. Uh, In Israel, again, as we talked about last week, according to polls, it's certainly not on the top of uh, the average Israeli's mind, but there are certain populations who are very invested in it. Uh, Actually, interestingly, the further right you go in the Israeli map, the more they are against this because they feel that this is a trap. Uh, They feel that uh, by applying sovereignty to only certain areas, they can make enclaves, settlement enclaves, and they believe that this will come with a quid pro quo of recognizing uh, a Palestinian state, which is something the far right in Israel certainly uh, can't countenance at this point. Um, so sort of, let's say from the moderate right onwards up to the far right, uh, there are those who certainly welcome this or at least will not resist it in any way. Um, but I think the uh, it's certainly, it's, it's a policy which obviously has legs. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has uh, noticed have been quite quiet on it uh, the last few days. Uh, there were a few weeks where he would bring it up in any opportunity and at this point in time it's very rare, uh, perhaps because some of the details haven't been worked out. Uh, Foreign Minister uh, Gabi Ashkenazi, who is the number two of Benny Gantz in the Blue and White Party and a significant figure who is known to be very reluctant about this uh, move, uh, came out very very recently and said that there'll be no annexation of the Jordan Valley. And that's a very significant comment because the main case on the annexation for the Jordanian Valley, as opposed to other areas within uh, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank is largely on a security basis. The idea, and this goes back from the left to the right, uh, successive Israeli governments and successive senior officials in the um, security establishment have argued uh, that the Jordan Valley has to be retained by Israel in, in some status. Um, because it's, it's a bulwark between uh, Israel and the wider Arab world with Jordan especially seen as a relatively unstable uh, country. Uh, you never know what's going to be the future of that, so Israel needs to retain a significant presence uh, on its eastern border and Gabi Ashkenazi coming from a uh, very senior security uh, uh, figure to come out and say this. Again he didn't say openly these are just reports but usually they're quite accurate when the Israeli uh, media picks up on these, and most of the time it's been leaked intentionally. So for him to say that, it's 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 quite significant. Uh, my long-standing position remains that Netanyahu will do something. He will do something symbolic, probably in one, two, or three of the major, uh, what's called the consensus settlement blocks: the Etzion block, the Ariel block, and the Malal Dumim block, um, which which mostly uh, you know. Uh, very close to the green line, so they wouldn't uh, necessarily, at least apart from the Ariel block, wouldn't jut too far out into the West Bank and uh, make a problem for uh, Palestinian uh, t- contiguity, which is something that many uh, in the international uh, community say would be a death knell to the two states for two people solution. Uh, speaking of which, again, in the last 24 hours, the UN Security Council have, have met, and apart from the US, obviously. Uh, every single member has come out against, again, with the usual talking points. This is against international law. This is against a uh, negotiated solution. This is against the uh, possibility of a two-state solution, etc., etc. And the Arab League was invited and, as you can imagine, came out very strongly again, uh, as it usually does in, in these sort of uh, events. And the Israeli ambassador, Danny Danon, obviously gave quite a defense of uh, Israel's Uh, rights to do what it's doing and basically came out with a very important point that you know this policy whether you agree with it or not is there largely because of Palestinian rejectionism. Palestinian rejectionism as we all know has lasted over a century and for at least decades at least since the Oslo Accords were created we've been talking about Israel concessions, uh, Israel offers etc etc. But there's been very little movement, so perhaps this is something to get us out of the status quo. Perhaps, arguably, yes; arguably, no. Time will only tell. Um, but it's interesting. He made the he made his, uh, you know part of his strong case that you know Palestinian rejectionism is what's led us to this point. So it's time that rather than acting against what Israel feels is its best interest and what it legally, in his words, and rightfully uh, is able to do, uh, let's start turning the focus a little bit on where the major obstacle to peace is, and that is the longstanding uh, Palestinian rejectionism. So one week today is the 1st of July. That is the date where, according to the coalition agreement between Likud and Blue and White to form this national unity government, uh, that's the date where Netanyahu can without uh, full approval of Blue and White, that's what the coalition agreement uh, states, can move ahead with uh, uh this application of sovereignty. Um, The agreement said that it should be done uh, together, it should be done in consultation, but Netanyahu retains that all important veto uh, where he's allowed to move ahead even if there is resistance in blue and white. He knows, even though he may not bring it to the Knesset, he knows that he'll find support uh, with Yamina, uh, which is the right-wing religious party of Naftali Bennett and very possibly even Victor Liebman's Show Beitainer. So the numbers are certainly there for him uh, in Israeli politics, uh, which have, has also uh, seen quite a tumultuous week, just like it did last week. And certainly the relationships between the disparate parties in this government are certainly not getting any better. Uh, there's an interesting, in the last hour, there's been an interesting proposal for a law uh, which would disbar uh, the testimony of advisers to parliament members or ministers, or even the prime minister uh, from giving testimony against their bosses uh, during or even after their tenure uh, in a court of law. Now, why is this significant? Because as we know, Prime Minister Netanyahu has three cases pending against him, the, the cases have already started, criminal cases, and at least two, if not all of them, are, are, are resting on very significant evidence Uh, from former Netanyahu advisors and aides. And the law at this point is trying to also uh, be applied retroactively, which would mean some of the most important witnesses in the Netanyahu cases would then be disbarred from giving testimony. As you can imagine, that presents a lot of legal difficulties that will be certainly challenged. And as we know, the Minister of Justice, uh, Abi Nissinkorn, is from the Blue and White Party, so you can imagine probably not something he's going to allow, and certainly the Attorney General is going to find uh, a lot of difficulties with it, but again, it just shows how far each side is, is pushing each other. Uh, in the last 24 hours or so, there was a sort of trial balloon, whether Yamina can join the government or not. There were certainly good members who called on it to join. Uh, some saw this as, again, if Yamina joins, then we reestablish we the right-wing religious bloc which was the the all-important bloc that ensured that Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, was able to uh, go for elections each time, was able to block any opposing, uh, you know, block uh, of of, uh, parties. Um, But as we know, Yamina were now left out of the government. Um, So some look at that as as a possible turning point that maybe Netanyahu seeking elections at some point in the near future, if he brings Yamina back into the government. Um, Naftali Bennett was at first uh, a little bit welcoming of it, saying, we're ready, we're willing, I'm not even interested in posts, I'm interested in helping, especially against the coronavirus, but with the economy, didn't even mention sovereignty. Uh, but then obviously at some point he was either rebuffed from within his own party or from uh, the more senior levels of could, because then he came out with a a far more uh, uh, rejectionist uh, point of view where says, I'm not going to come to this bloated government, this wasteful government, which is not focusing on the important issues. So you can see something happened uh, between the, in the last 24 hours that, uh, that uh, Bennett basically understood that he's not joining the government at this point, but it is clear that he would certainly be interested. Um, but again, that can be seen as another one of these possible markers to show that Netanyahu wants to get his pieces in place um, for potential uh, elections in the near future. Again, we talked last week about the, the idea of moving from a, two, uh, a two-year budget to a one-year budget, and that could be used as an excuse for Netanyahu to get out of this national unity government before having to hand over to GANs because there is a law in Israel that if the budget doesn't pass by, I believe, March or something like that, then automatically go to elections, regardless of anything else. So there are certain markers (coughs) which uh, political commentators are looking at to see whether uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is seeking early elections. His polls uh, ratings are still high, Um, but what we do know is that the unemployment uh, stipends and certain other stipends that were given out due to the coronavirus pandemic are starting to end this month. Uh, So some of the economic effects will only start to be felt. Uh, by the hundreds of thousands, uh, if not over a million, uh, Israelis who are currently unemployed or in furlough. So, as I've suggested before, I think Netanyahu will understand that you know anything can happen in hundred days, uh, calling elections, and I, I, I think he realizes that this is not the right time. But you never know, there's a lot of animosity or at least a certain level of uh, un- un- uncertainty between... Uh, the parties. We see this daily sniping. We see daily actions to try and catch out the other. Uh, this week, there was certainly a lot of controversy over <coughs> the um, the proposal, which was actually accepted in the end, that Netanyahu should get a million shekels in backdated taxes, um, which was considered very controversial or something that we could hope to slip in uh, to. Uh, the finance committee in the Knesset, which basically discussed the budget for this office, uh, this brand new office of alternate prime minister and all the conditions economic and otherwise that will be given. And suddenly at the last minute, some of the journalists noticed there was a, there was a line about uh, providing uh, Netanyahu with back taxes, uh, some things which he never requested in the last 10 years, and it actually even went back to uh, 2009 when he first became prime minister. So you can imagine that whatever the, uh, the rights and wrongs of it, you can imagine the optics of during a significantly uh, difficult economic time for a prime minister to ask a million uh, shekels from the Israeli public purse to fund uh, his uh, expenses, whether it's uh, at his home in uh, Caesarea, or whether it's uh, uh, part of it is because uh, he's taxed on an expensive car because he's been told to have an expensive car, an armored vehicle, and he's now asking uh, to only be taxed at a normal minister's level car. It's a bit of a complicated issue and that he could try to explain it away and say, well, you know, he's forced, uh, this car is forced on him and, you know, every other prime minister had it and they actually interviewed every former prime minister who's still alive, and they said that that's not true. Anyway, so it was, it was a bit of a difficult uh, uh, explanation there, but it just shows the sort of back and forth and the sniping between the two uh, major parties in this coalition, and it's certainly not an easy marriage. And it could unravel. Uh, certainly one misstep could, could see it unravel. But at the moment, I think it's still at the highest levels between Gantz and Netanyahu in uh, the best interests of both of them to maintain it uh, for now. With that, I'm happy to answer any questions.
0: All right, thank you so much. Uh, So, the first question is is, The Associated Press says most of the world is opposed to Israel extending sovereignty. The Arabs threaten violence. The UN insists that it violates international law. Uh, How does Israel plan on countering this turn of opposition and hostility?
1: I think, it's, I, I think it's not unexpected. It's been a long-standing position by the vast majority of nations that Israel's mere presence over the Green Line in the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria is already a violation of uh, international law. But it's been accepted that for now until there's final status negotiations, and certainly since the Oslo Accords, that Israel's presence is tolerated. But what it's going to do uh, by applying sovereignty is seen by most of the world, I would say, much of the world, uh, as, as something else as, as, as creating facts on the ground as taking unilateral steps as being something very much out of sync with the, the spirit of the Oslo Accords and the concept of a two state solution. Um, so I think that that 's probably uh, where it is. Uh, the, Cy- the Cypriot prime minister uh, and the Israeli Prime Minister had a discussion uh, this week. Uh, he was supposed to come in, but because of the rise in coronavirus cases in Israel, he he cancelled it. But something that was very interesting that that, uh, supposedly or reportedly Prime Minister Netanyahu is trying to use some of his better relations in relationships in Europe, especially with the Greeks, with the Hungarians, with the Cypriots, to try and at least block some of the more severe steps that some of the more extreme nations like Ireland, like Spain, who are more hostile to Israel, uh, are suddenly going to be pushing for. So there's this sort of... Again, not really a game, but there's this diplomatic sort of stance where you know Israel will try and water down any response by the international community as much as possible through some of its major friends in the different uh, arenas. But I, I don't think there's there's too much surprise at the highest levels of Israel uh, to the opposition. Uh, the question is not necessarily for because at, at this point it's all about trying to pressure Israel. It's what will the actual, real, concrete steps. Uh, that could be taken after, because there is certainly a sense that while there will be condemnation, there will be harshly worded communiques, that the truth will be seen in what really happens to these relationships after. Is there going to be a, a, you know, a tearing up of any agreements? Is there going to be a lowering of normalization with, uh, with, with, with some in the Arab world, etc., etc.? So that's where a lot of, uh, that, that's far more important. And there is, a feeling that the that there won't be as a robust uh, response as some would like. Um, and, you know, at the moment, it's all about pressure rather than uh, really, you know, uh, dampening
0: relations. Okay, thank you so much. Would you actually be able to expand upon how this um, extension of sovereignty could damage any relations with budding relationships
1: with other Arab countries? Well, that, that's certainly what uh, some are trying to uh, state. You know, we had uh, the UAE ambassador who wrote an unprecedented Hebrew language op-ed. Uh, it was a week ago now, maybe a little bit longer, uh, where basically the title was uh, annexation or normalization. If you annex, apply the sovereignty, then the normalization stops uh, or even reverses. But then you had a few days later, you had the foreign minister of the UAE in a conversation uh, with the uh, AJC, the American Jewish Committee, where he basically said we can have disagreements, including about sovereignty, and our relationships can still grow because there's so much uh, we still need to do together, whether it's a fight against coronavirus, whether it's high-tech cooperation. He didn't mention it, but probably the most vital point uh, of shared interest between Israel and the Arab world is, is the combating the, the rise of Iran, especially as a potential uh, nuclear uh, power. Um, so my, my feeling is that these things don't change. You know, The, the normalization was not because they were suddenly Zionists, because they suddenly became lovers of Israel, but because of shared interests. And these shared interests, whether they're Iran or, or combating the rise of extremist groups like ISIS, remain. Uh, and at the end of the day, these leaders don't really care about the Palestinian issue. They haven't cared for, for quite a while. And it used to be something which would engage the Arab street, whereas that's not so true anymore. So I think they even realize that it's not something which will bring out hundreds of, or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands uh, into the streets of the capitals of the uh, Sunni uh, Arab uh, uh, countries. So I think that there's certainly a lot of room uh, for maneuver from them. Of course, we will see the condemnation. We will see the uh, communicate, we will see the attempts at resolutions at the UN or at the Arab League, uh, Organization of Islamic Countries, etc. etc. They will certainly uh, not be happy about it and they will come out. But my feeling is that the, the interest will overcome uh, any of that.
0: How can some of the settlements be part of Israel if they end up being surrounded by a future Palestinian country in the event of a two state solution?
1: that's 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 uh, what they're trying to figure out at the moment uh, that's what the American as I said the American administration are sitting down probably with maps uh, that they themselves created in the peace to prosperity uh, uh, you know peace plan uh, maps that Israel has looked at there you know there, there's been possibly ma- uh, some minor changes but certainly not major changes and that's something that the, there's, there's two uh, sort of competing narratives amongst the settlement leadership. There are those who want to accept the plan and say, you know what, if if we're going to be able to apply sovereignty, let's do it and worry about everything else later. And then there's, I would say the majority uh, of leaders, although they don't necessarily represent the majority population on the ground, uh, have taken a more maximalist approach and said, uh, if this means recognition of Palestinian state, we're against If this means enclave Israeli communities, uh, surrounded by Palestinian Authority territories, then that's also a problem for us as well. Um, so, so there's certainly been those two competing narratives. Um, as I said, I think at this point it'll be relatively easy to draw lines uh, that would include some of the major blocks, whether it's the Etzion block, whether it's the Mali Adumim block, because we're talking about uh, communities a few kilometers from the Green Line, uh, which are already, you know, pretty much uh, uh, next to uh, sovereign Israel territory, so it'd be much easier to do so. It wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't need to draw these complicated lines around major Arab uh, uh, Palestinian populations. Um, so I think the more fiddly and the more difficult uh, maps, if they're drawn, that will come much, much later. That's my personal feeling on it. Thank you.
0: How important is Qatar's threat to stop funding Hamas?
1: Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, we, we live in an Orwellian world as we see around the world today. And the fact that today we have, you know, an enemy country because Qatar is still an enemy country. It does not have any sort of peace or even recognition of Israel. And it certainly supports some very uh, problematic and terrorist groups uh, in the region and has a very problematic relationship with Iran that they've basically been delivering millions, tens of millions of dollars, sometimes literally in suitcases, cash in suitcases to uh, the Gaza, which is Hamas-controlled territory. And we know that barely 20, 25% actually goes to the population and the other 75% suddenly disappears. And we know pretty much where it ends up and it ends up into the hands of uh, Hamas. So some people have called this protection money that Israel allows in to make sure that Hamas get what they want and then they won't be shooting rockets at Israel. Sometimes when Hamas shoots rockets in Israel, it's to get their attention and to ask Israel, in so many words, to give them what they want, and it's usually cash control uh, to ensure, uh, show up their regime, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the fact that Qatar is asking, is threatening, I should say, uh, not to give money to Hamas uh, to stop this application of sovereignty is, is a really bizarre. Uh, place for us to be. But it really shows, perhaps, where, where we're standing today, that this will probably uh, raise quite a few eyebrows, especially in the defence establishment, which is very keen on quiet, understandably so, but is it short-term quiet against long-term um, deterrence? Because it's clear that Hamas do not feel deterred, uh, have not felt deterred, and when their demands are met, there's certainly far less deterrence. Uh, So we live in quite an Orwellian world where Qatar can make that threat and uh, I hope Israel's not uh, considering that a factor, but unfortunately there will be pockets within the establishment who will certainly uh, take that into account and that should also worry us a little bit. Thanks. Uh, We're going to move on to a new topic. Do
0: you think the coalition government will fall apart in
1: the next short while? Short while is uh, is quite a subjective term. Again, I I, I don't think so. Um, My personal belief is both leaders need this to last uh, for a certain amount of time at least. Netanyahu, I I, I wouldn't put any money on him handing over uh, the reins in a year and a half to Gantz, but I believe for now with uh, coronavirus, with the economic uh, ramifications, with everything that's going on, uh, Gantz certainly needs to hold on. Um, I don't see this coalition breaking up, but We talked about this uh, previously from my experience in the Knesset. When people start talking about elections, it can become a self fulfilling prophecy. And what I mean by that is that when people start talking about elections, every party starts to jockey on positions that they feel will be important for their electorate going into the next elections. And if they feel that there's movement towards elections, so then they start threatening to pull out of the government or threatening maximalist positions so they can show why their voter base should then stick with them in the next election. So sometimes we've gone to elections just because of this, you know, just really because everyone believes that there's elections in air. So in the air, so everyone really starts taking maximum positions and starts speaking to their base ahead of this elections. So that's, you know, I've seen that in the past and that's certainly possible, but I think at the top levels, uh, despite the disagreements, I, I, I don't think that there's an interest in breaking this up quite yet.
0: Thank you. And the last question for the evening for you, afternoon for us. Um, What measures is the government taking to control the spread of COVID-19 now that it's spiking
1: upwards again? Um, Well, the messages have been a a, a little bit messy uh, of late, whether we're going to go into some sort of lockdown. The threat, I think, needs to remain. But I don't think it's really uh, a strong threat, because I think most people know that economically, not just Israel, most countries wouldn't be able to cope with another large-scale lockdown. So uh, the Minister of Health, Yuli Edelstein, uh, his new Director General, uh, have both said that we're not interested in lockdown, we don't think it's necessary. What they have started to do in the last couple of days is have regional lockdowns of either towns, cities or neighbourhoods within cities where there's been a very strong rise in coronavirus cases. Uh, What has happened in the last week is, you know, one of the major spreads, I know it's a controversial issue in the US, but here it's less controversial, but one of the, the, you know, considered the greatest spread is uh, not wearing a mask. Uh, And in Israel up until recently, uh, it wasn't really enforced. And if you were to get a fine, it would be 200 shekels, which is, let me do the math, about $60, I think, something like that. So now they've raised it to 500 shekels. Uh, which is far more significant. And you can see, and I've certainly saw, I was in Tel Aviv today, I was in Jerusalem today, and I saw a lot more people wearing masks. I think it's important um, that threat is there, because that is what will stop the spread. Um, But a lot of the spread is in schools, amongst younger populations. At the end of the day, it's not really bringing up the numbers of people who need to be um, on Breathing machines—it's not bringing up the number of cases significantly of people who are seriously ill. Uh, We haven't seen any deaths uh, in a few days. So the idea, like everywhere in the world, you know, because you can't—you simply can't stop people dying from this because we don't have uh, a vaccine or preventative, a significantly preventative drug at this point. The idea is to flatten the curve to make sure that the hospitals are not, uh, you know, overrun. Uh, And certainly, that's not the case, even though the numbers. You know, a, about a month ago, we ha- we were in almost single-digit numbers uh, for daily uh, new cases. Now we're up uh, to 300, 400 cases a day. So there's a certain amount of worry and concern. Um, but again, the, the significant numbers, which are those who are need ho- require hospitalisation or to be on a respirator, are very, very minor at this point. Uh, so I think that you know, the government looks at that and thinks we're not going to harm the economy. Because our hospitals can deal, our health system can deal with this, uh, so they are taking measures to try and stop us from getting there. You know, today there was a briefing by senior health officials that say we could be by next week into a thousand a day. Certainly, that would be a a, a little bit different. Um, but a lot of this is just, I think, intelligently so to try and instill some sort of fear uh, into the population to try and stick to the requirements, which are you know, in Israel. I think it was uh, uh, Netanyahu has a very nice acronym for washing hands, uh, uh, what's it, social distancing and wearing masks. If we do those three things, that numbers should go down, especially as schools have started to, uh, to break up at this point. The older grades have already finished and that was, uh, you know, schools are one of the main sources of this new, the spread during this new wave. So as soon as schools are more significantly broken up. I'm sure that will have some effect on the numbers, um, but uh, you know, nothing else really has been repealed at this point. Israeli society pretty much is open. The, the buses are open. The, the trains were open this week, um, so you know the numbers are worrying, but uh, they're not taking significant steps at this point.
0: Thank you. We have unfortunately come to the end of our webinar today. We have so many questions coming in, so tune in next week to ask those. Um, Thank you again, Mr. Perry, for joining us and taking the time to update us this week. And on Friday, we will be having a webinar at 1 p.m. Eastern with Wolfgang G. Schwanitz discussing Grand Mufti al-Hasani's influence abiding impact. Thank you all again for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful day.